like the distant striking of a clock. It was midnight, and all the statues in the sculptor's bare white studio began to wake at the magic stroke which granted them a few hours of life. There was just a shimmer of movement in the dim corners. Marble limbs stirred. Marble face turned slowly to gaze at marble face. And yet, as if they could be only half awakened in the shadows where the life-giving draught of moonlight might not flow, there was but the faintest flicker of white forms and draperies. It was the just-finished statue of the girl which felt the full thrill of moonshine and midnight. She woke rapturously, and drained the silver moon wine in her cup. The music told the story of her first thought and living heartbeat, and then down she stepped from the platform where the sculptor's tool still lay, and began to dance for the other statues who watched in the dusk, hushed back into stillness under the new spell of her enchantments. Stephen had never seen anything like that dance. Many pretty premieres danseuses he had admired and applauded, charming and clever young women of France, of Russia, of Italy, and Spain, and they had roused him and all London to enthusiasm over dances eccentric, original, exquisite, or wild. But never had there been anything like this. Stephen had not known that a dance could move him as this did. He was roused, even thrilled, by its poetry, and the perfect beauty of its poses, its poises, it must, he supposed, have been practiced patiently, perhaps for years, and yet it produced the effect of being entirely unstudied. At all events there was nothing in the ordinary sense professional about it. One would say, not knowing the supreme art of supreme grace, that a joyous child, born to the heritage of natural grace, might dance thus, by sheer inspiration, in ecstasy of life and worship of the newly found beauty of earth. Stephen did know something of art, and the need of devotion to its study, and yet he found it hard to realize that this awakened marble loveliness had gone through the same performance, week after week, month after month, in America, and England. He preferred rather to let himself fancy that he was dreaming the whole thing, and he would gladly have dreamed on indefinitely, forgetting the smoky atmosphere, forgetting the long-haired students and all the incongruous surroundings. The gracious dream gave him peace and pleasure, such as he had not known since the beginning of the Northmoreland case. Through the house there was a hush. Unusual at the Follies Bergeres, people hardly knew what to make of the dances, so different from any ever seen in a theatre of Paris. Stephen was not alone in feeling the curious dream-spell woven by the music and perfection of beauty. But the light changed. The moonlight slowly faded. Dancer and music faltered. In the falling of the dark hour before dawn, the charm was waning. Soft notes died and quavered in apprehension. The magic charm of the moon was breaking, had broken, a crash of cymbals, and the studio was dark. Then light began to glimmer once more. But it was the chill light of dawn, and growing from purple to blue, from blue to rosy day. It showed the marble statues fast locked in marble sleep again. 
On the platform stood the girl, with uplifted arm, holding her cup now to catch the wine of sunrise. And on the delicately chiseled face was a faint smile which seemed to hide a secret. When the first ray of yellow sunshine gilded the big skylight, a door upstage opened, and the sculptor came in, wearing his workman's blouse. He regarded his handiwork as the curtain came down. When the music of the dream had ceased, and suddenly became ostentatiously puerile, the audience broke into a tumult of applause. Women clapped their hands furiously, and many men shouted, Brava! Brava! hoping that the curtain might rise once more on the picture. But it did not rise, and Stephen was glad. The dream would have been vulgarized by repetition. For fully five minutes the orchestra played some gay tune, which everyone there had heard a hundred times, but abruptly it stopped, as if on a signal. For an instant there was a silence of waiting and suspense, which roused interest and piqued curiosity. Then there began a delicate symphony, which could mean nothing but spring in a forest, and on that the curtain went up. The prophecy of the music was fulfilled, for the scene was a woodland in April, with young leaves a-flicker and blossoms in birth, the light song of the flutes and violins being the song of birds in love. All the trees were brocaded with dainty gold-green lace, and daffodils sprouted from the moss at their feet. The birds sang more gaily, and out from behind a silver-trunked beech tree danced a figure in spring green. Her arms were full of flowers, which she scattered as she danced, curtsying, mocking, beckoning the shadow that followed her along the daisied grass. Her little feet were bare, and flitted through the green folding of her draperies like white night-moths fluttering among rose-leaves. Her hair fell over her shoulders and curled below her waist. It was red hair that glittered and waved, and she looked a radiant child of sixteen. Victoria Ray, the dancer, and the girl on the channel boat were one. End of chapter 3